Please pray with me as we turn our attention to the word. Father in heaven, we pray now that you would bless the reading and the preaching of your most holy word, that you would continue to use it to convict us, to encourage us, to conform us to the likeness of the Lord Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. The couple had been dating for 18 months. They'd met each other's families. They had many shared experiences. They had navigated the ups and the downs of their relationship. She was what this man was looking for. He had been praying that God would provide him a woman just like this. She was the one, he thought. He bought the ring. It was very expensive. The day came. The setting was perfect. He knelt down on one knee, and as he professed his love for this woman, this perfectly articulated expression of devotion culminated in the question, will you marry me? The woman was wide-eyed. She stared back down at him with a bit of a vacant expression on her face, met with a long pause and an even longer stare. She didn't say anything. She just stood there. The seconds felt like days. And finally, the man broke the silence and said, darling, I love you. Do you love me? And she just stood there. No words, no response, no decision. She just looked at him in silence. You and I realized what was happening because sometimes saying nothing is actually saying everything. Sometimes no words communicate more than words. Sometimes not making a decision is actually making a decision. That's because there are moments in life where there are only two options, yes or no. It's a binary reality that requires a choice. And if no decision is made, it automatically means that you accept one of those two options. No decision is a decision. Friends, I fear that we live in a culture right now that is filled with so many messages of self-fulfillment and so many options. We live in a buffet-style reality for almost anything you could possibly think of. And as a result, there are many who believe that they don't have to make a choice when it comes to the rule and to the reign of God. 
They don't have to make a choice when it comes to whether or not they want to follow Jesus. Some think that they can take parts or pieces of Jesus or the message of Jesus, but not the whole. Or perhaps some believe that if they just wait him out in indecision, that somehow the whole thing will just soften in its significance and I won't actually be required to make a decision. Everything will work out just fine. In short, there are many who think they will be okay without making a decision. But friends, no decision is a decision. (laughs) Jesus seems to indicate that in John chapter 3, verse 36, when he communicates one of these binary realities. This is what he says. It's on the screen behind me. He says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. It seems like there's two options. Believe in the Son and, by extension, obey him, or disobey him and, by extension, disbelieve in him. Two choices. A binary reality that requires a person to choose. A decision is required, and no decision is actually a decision. You know this to be true in your life. We could give a million examples of how this is true. We see it in Jesus' life as well. Here's just a couple of those examples. When Jesus meets his disciples, Simon and Andrew, for the very first time, they're fishing, and he tells them to lay down their nets to come follow him, and he will make them fishers of men. The options were clear. Stand up and start walking, which means you will follow Jesus, or stay there with your nets, which means you won't follow him. And no decision means that you will not follow him. Likewise, Jesus is walking down the street. He sees Zacchaeus in the tree. He says, Zacchaeus, come down from the tree. I'm going to dine at your house tonight. The options were clear. Zacchaeus could get down out of the tree, which indicated that he would welcome Jesus into his home, or he could choose to stay in the tree, which meant he would reject Jesus and his invitation. No decision is a decision to reject the invitation of Jesus in that moment. There are many, li- there are many realities in life that are binary in this way. They cause us to choose. And this is most certainly true of the biggest question in life. How will I live as it relates to God, the world, and the people around me? How will I live? A decision is required and no decision is actually a decision. Over the past six weeks, we've talked about building the foundation of understanding this together, about what the Bible says about ourselves, God, and the world, and it relates to this question, how will I live? We have seen the logic of it, 
We've talked about the logic of it this morning. The logic that God is the good creator of the world. He's the ruler of the world and everything in it. Without that foundation to understand, you can't answer a question of how you're going to live in an adequate way. We've seen that we all reject, every one of us reject God's rule by living our lives our own way. And in doing so, this is sin and a rebellion against our king in which we are separated from him. We've seen that God won't let us rebel against him forever. That the punishment for rebellion against the king will ultimately be judgment and death. But God loved us so much that he sent Jesus to die for us. That Jesus is God's perfect son who always lived under his rule. And he took our punishment upon himself by dying on the cross in our place. We've seen that God raised him from the dead. And as God raised him from the dead, he did so so that he would become the ruler of the world and the judge of the world. He conquered death. He brings forgiveness and new life to all who would follow him. And he will return one day in glory. That's the logic of, of behind this question, how will I live as it relates to God, others, and the world? Those are the foundation pieces, and they all come to an inflection point. They all come to a choice. There are two ways to live. Our way or God's way. (laughs) There are only two ways. Our way in which we reject God's rule, we make ourselves the ruler, we live our own way, and we face death and judgment. Or God's new way, which is to submit to Jesus as our ruler, to rely on him in his death and resurrection, to forgive us, and to receive the new life that he offers that lasts forever. And Jesus takes all of that that we just talked about and he summarizes it in a very succinct way in John 3, 36. When he says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life and whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And so which way do you want to live? Let's describe from the Bible some of the ways that, um, some of the dynamics if we live our own way. Paul summarizes this in Ephesians chapter 2, and there's a lot in just three short verses. This is what he talks about people living their own way. He says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Notice the spiritual state that he's talking about here. It's described in terms of our relationship to ourselves, God, and the world. And it's talked about in these terms. Spiritually, we're dead in our sins. Spiritually, we're like most of the world. 
And he even uses the phrase, following the course of the world. That's really interesting. Because when you don't make a choice to do something, what do you do? You follow the course of the world. That the world is on a trajectory toward a terminal end. And on that trajectory, you just sort of set your life on autopilot and you go about your days and you do whatever you want to do to sort of meet your needs or supply your desires along the way. And you just follow the course of the world. What a great description of what a lot of people actually do. But he says in following the course of the world, what you're actually doing is following the prince of the power of the air. That's a really detailed title for Satan. (laughs) And how does that work its way out in living life your own way? Well, we're all really good at this. We don't really have to make a choice to do this. This is what we do intuitively. It says, living according to the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. That is living life your own way. None of us have to think about how to provide ourselves comfort. We all intuitively seek comfort all the time. None of us have to get up in the morning and say, oh, should I entertain myself or should I do something hard? Of course I'm going to entertain myself. That's what we do all the time. That's what we intuitively navigate. That's living life our own way. And Paul says that in that way, you're dead in your sins and you're children of wrath. That is not a description that you want applied to you. And so what does the other alternative look like? What does it look like to make a choice to follow Jesus as the king? There are two words that stick out more than others as you look through the New Testament about what people do when they make a decision to follow Jesus. Those words are repent and believe. Let me just walk you through very quickly and illustrate it for you. Jesus' public ministry is just beginning in Mark chapter 1, and his message from the very beginning is going to be his message all the way to the end. It says this in Mark 1, 14 and 15, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. In the gospel. In John 6 47, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. In Acts chapter 2, Peter is speaking to a large crowd that has gathered on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit has come, and he is telling them about what God has done. And it brings them to a point of decision. It says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified, Lord and Christ, King and Savior. That's what God made Jesus to be. Now when they heard this, something was happening inside of them. They were cut to the heart, it says, and they said to Peter and the rest of the disciples, what shall we do? We just killed the king and the Savior. What should we do now? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. Acts chapter 3, just one chapter later. 
preaching again. Now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance and did also, so did also did your rulers. What God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. What should you do now? Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out and that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time of restoring all things about which God has spoken by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Acts chapter 16, the message of the gospel is shared again and it brings people to the point of a decision where they say, I'm starting to see for the first time that God is the ruler of the world. Jesus is the Lord and the Christ. Sirs, what must we do to be saved? And the answer, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. Or Acts chapter 20, Paul is saying goodbye to the elders of the church of Ephesus. He has labored with them and for them. He's moving toward his death. If you think about your final words to somebody you love, somebody you've engaged with in the most important things, those words are going to be pointed, they're going to be direct, they're going to be crisp. What does Paul say to them? He reminds them that he didn't shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public from house to house testifying to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Of all the things I want to remind you of, of all the things I've devoted myself to, repentance and faith. So you see, these two common words emerge, and these are just a couple examples. We could give you many, many more what do you do when you want to decide to live under the rule and the reign of King Jesus? You repent and you believe. But those words could be construed a number of different ways. So what does that mean to repent and to believe? Let's just look at that real briefly. To repent, the idea of repentance is turning away from something. But not just turning away from something, it also means turning toward something else. In that way, repentance is more than just feeling sorry for what you've done. It is a change of mind that results in a change of action. And this is shown in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Paul is recounting how God saved these incredible people and he talks about the way God did that. And notice how feeling sorry is one thing, but repenting is something else. He says it this way. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So feeling sorry or godly grief is one thing. Repentance is something else. And it's true, repentance includes feeling sorry. It includes godly grief but it also has a change of mind that results in action that's with it. And Paul 
gives the, gives the opposite of that, which he calls worldly grief that produces death. How does worldly grief produce death? If you're sorry for something, you're grieved by it, but then you don't do anything different, are you actually better off? No, you're not. It continues to point you down the wrong path. There are a lot of people that think repentance is just feeling bad about something and going forward, but not changing your actions. It's sort of like the child that says he's sorry for stealing the food out of the cupboard, but then does it again the very next day. Or it's like the celebrity that bemoans the notion that climate change is going to wreck the world, and then they hop on their private jet to go to their next appointment. And that just drives me crazy. Or it's like the woman who apologizes profusely to her husband in great grief because she was caught having an affair. And she expresses her desire to stay married. But then she heads back into the arms of the man that she had the affair with just days later. Repentance is not just being grieved and being sorry. Repentance is being grieved, but it's changing your mind, which changes your actions. Repentance turns us away from sin, and it turns us toward God. And here's a, 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 an important part of this. In this way, repenting is directly related to the idea of submitting. And submitting is one of the most difficult parts for most of us. Because turning away from sin is one thing, but turning toward Jesus as the ruler necessarily requires us to submit to him. And when you perceive yourself to be a competent person, it's hard to bend the knee. <laughs> when you have a relative amount of wealth and your material needs are met, regardless of what decision you make, it's hard to yield your will to God. And perhaps the inflection point for most of us is that when there is something in our life that we like to do or like to have, but it's sinful, something that we find temporary pleasure in, but God tells us that that activity or that thing actually constitutes rebellion against him. It's in that moment that you have to make the choice, will I submit this area to the king? Will I yield this, this thing that I hold on to dearly, will I yield it to him? This thing that I love, will I repent? In his book, Generation X Christian, about younger Christians who are leaving Christianity, author Drew Dyke relates one interview of a young man who left Christianity to join the Wicca religion. Morning Hawk Apollo, who renamed himself 
as is common in Wiccan practice, discussed his rejection of Christianity, and he said this. He said, ultimately why I left is that the Christian God demands that you submit to his will. (laughs) In Wicca, it's just the other way around. Your will is paramount. We believe in gods and goddesses, but the deities we choose to serve are based on our wills. And as sad as that is for Morning Hawk Apollo, he's right. (laughs) The Christian God is the king of the universe who demands his followers to submit to his will. But submission is hard for many people. It's hard for many of us because at the end of the day, we all want to do what we want to do. (laughs) And none of us want to be held accountable for doing the things that we want to do, especially not accountable to someone who can render the most severe types of judgment. But Repentance includes submission, and that is the crossroads of the choice where you decide I am going to live my life my own way or I'm going to live my life God's way. And that submission continues on under the rule of King Jesus for all of your days. The second word that we saw is the word to believe. Uh, That is used in the Bible in a variety of different ways, to believe or to trust or to have faith. And those words are very closely related to one another. The call is to believe. Jesus uses this call again and again and again. Believe, believe, believe. To trust, to rely that the Lord Jesus himself forgives us of our sins because of his sacrifice on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. Then there is an ongoing faith or belief that is expressed in following him as your king for the rest of your days. This is important to recognize. Faith is not a feeling. It's not some, and it's not something that just happens. It is belief and trust through a volition of the mind and the heart. Let me say that again because it's important. Faith is not a feeling and it's not something that just happens to you. You don't get faith by growing up in a Christian family. You don't have faith by going to church. Faith is a volition of the mind and the will. And it's only as valid as its object is. This is what I mean by that. Your faith, no matter how strong it is, you could have the strongest faith in the world, but faith doesn't have the power to save you. The object of your faith is what saves you. You could have tremendous faith in very thin ice and still fall through the ice and drown. Or you could have a very shaky faith in thick ice and you will be perfectly safe. It's not the strength of your faith. It's the strength of the object of your faith that saves. That's important. Why? Because today, many, many people have a very strong faith in the wrong object. (laughs) 
Many people have a very strong faith in themselves, in their ability to do something, to make something happen, to be good enough somehow. Many people have a very strong faith in governments. I haven't met them yet, but apparently they're out there. Many people have a very strong faith in their financial resources and wealth. Many people have a very strong faith in a very vague notion of spirituality. But those types of faith will not save. Why? Because the objects of those faith have not reckoned with the rule of a king and the rebellion against him. Faith needs a specific object, an object that has the power to save. And the object that has reckoned with rebellion against God as a creator and king, that object is the person of the Lord Jesus himself. John Stott says it this way beautifully. The essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. Sounds like our language of rebelling against the king and living lives our own way. The essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Man claims prerogatives that belong to God alone. And God accepts penalties that belong to man alone. That is the substitution that Jesus makes on the cross for you and for me in the midst of our rebellion. And the result of repentance and faith is to trust and follow the rule and the reign of the king. There are two ways to live. Our way and God's way. Our way to reject God as our ruler and make ourselves the ruler of our lives, to live life our own way, to be damaged by sin and rebellion, and to ultimately face the final judgment and death. Or God's way, which is to submit to Jesus as the ruler and the king, to rely on him and his death for the forgiveness of sins, to receive that forgiveness from God and to receive new life that lasts forever, following him for the rest of our days. Which way will you choose? Because no decision here is a decision. This is the binary reality that demands a response. Let me close this morning by giving you a couple ways to illustrate why this is so important. Some of you grew up playing the board game, the game of life. It's a fun game. It had previous names in other countries. It was introduced in the 1960s in America and the purpose of the game was pretty straightforward. To earn the most wealth. The way that you got there was simple. 
You made good choices. You went to college, you got a job, you bought insurance, you saved for retirement. It was reflective of the values of the time. Over time, the designers of the game realized that the game didn't reflect the consumer's values as much as it used to because the culture had changed and people's life goals were all of a sudden very different. And so they gave the game a big update in the year 2007. They allowed players to score points for virtuous deeds, like saving an endangered species, or opening a health food chain, or recycling. And instead of having the game with a starting point of A and a finishing point of Z, there was no fixed path. You decide how you want to spend your time throughout this game of life. One question that popped up was if the popular view of what matters the most in life is expressed in a board game changed so much in less than 50 years, how much will it change in the next 50 years? How will you win life in the year 2072? One writer for the New Yorker named Jill Lepore said that the redesigned teams always had a hard time addressing the fundamental criticism of the game. That there's only one reward for a player for their virtuous act, and that one reward was money. Save an endangered species? Collect $200,000. Solution to pollution? Quarter of a mil. Open health food chain? 100000 And so the company's 2007 overhaul, the game of life, twists and turns, was almost existential in its nature. Instead of putting players on a fixed path, it provided multiple ways to start out your life, but nowhere to finish. The game never ended unless you chose to end it. And that was actually the selling point, that it has no goal. Life is aimless. What is the meaning of life? That's the question that people through every generation are asking. People wrestle with this question. Many of them do not find truly satisfying answers for their deepest longings of significance. Friends, only in Christ do we find the answers to life, the purpose of life in the universe and what awaits for us in eternity. This past spring, I was in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and one day on a walk, we happened to come across a real live roadrunner. You ever seen one in person? They're really neat looking. And they actually kind of look like the cartoon. And of course, it made me think about the cartoon. How Roadrunner and Wile E. Coyote would go at it and how Saturday mornings and the sequence of Saturday morning cartoons as a kid, I would get up and I would watch that coyote continue to try to catch that roadrunner. The coyote would try to do anything he could to get to the roadrunner. Rocket-propelled roller skates. Shooting himself out of a cannon to get the roadrunner. Launching himself from a giant slingshot in pursuit of this elusive roadrunner. Many times it would result in the coyote falling off of a cliff or getting run over by a train or having a bomb explode, his own bomb explode in his arms or my personal favorite, the anvil. 
that falls out of the sky because everybody carries around an anvil. But after you watch the failure after failure after failure of the coyote, you gain the epiphany that no matter what he does, he is never going to catch that fast little chicken-like bird. Never. But isn't that the story of humanity? That no matter what we do, we're never going to beat sin and death. No matter how many times we promise that we won't do it again, we usually do. No matter how many self-help books that we read, sin continues to damage our relationships, our goals, our careers, our entertainment. No matter how many peace treaties are signed, no matter how many relief efforts are launched, we still can't fix the world's biggest problems. And living our own way always leads us to the place where we're in the quiet of the night wondering what the purpose of our life, of our life really is. No matter how many vitamins we take, no matter how good our diet is, no matter how much exercise we engage in, no matter what the advances of modern medicine tend to be, we still can't beat death. That's been the result of every single person who lives life their own way, period, full stop. The people who live as if God doesn't exist and they are the king. But for those who repent and believe, those who live under the reign of King Jesus, the marker points in the story of their life is markedly different. For those ones, they find true and lasting purpose for life. They find joy in their activities. They can even find contentment in a way that others can't find as it relates to their possessions. They find comfort from the Holy Spirit in the midst of difficult times and even times of the greatest difficulty. They find direction in the midst of confusion. For those who follow the king, they find a deep and genuine love that they've never experienced or known before. They find a fascination with God as they continue to get to know him in his infinite ways. They find deep affection as they learn to love him and his ways. They find hope for eternity as they approach the day of their death. And when they pass away from this life and from this world, the sting of death holds no sway over them. And the picture of this terminal end for so many people as they perceive it to be, but is really just the beginning and the doorway to eternity, is expressed beautifully from the Puritan John Ryland as he thinks upon the death of his friend, as he engages with those who in 1784 saw their friend Andrew Gifford pass away and be buried. And in the presence of those who lived life their own way, and in the presence of those who made Jesus their king and lived life God's way, he said this, Farewell, thou dear old man. 
we leave thee in possession of death until the resurrection day. But we will bear witness against thee, O king of terrors, at the mouth of this dungeon. Thou shalt not always have possession of this dead body. It shall be demanded of thee by the great conqueror. And at that moment, thou shalt resign thy prisoner. O ye ministers of Christ, ye people of God, ye surrounding spectators, prepare. Prepare to meet this old servant of Christ at that day, that hour when this whole place shall be nothing but life and death shall be swallowed up in victory. There are two ways to live. Our way or God's way. Your rule or Jesus' rule. They produce different lives. They lead to different eternities. Which one will you choose? Knowing that no decision is actually a decision. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you that his rule and his reign are kind, that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. We thank you that as hard as submission feels in the moment, that you make ongoing submission easier and easier by the years as you change us. Father, I imagine that there are some here today who have not made a decision, who have been waiting for some reason why. And today they come to the point of needing to make a decision. In this moment, I ask for your kindness and grace to overflow upon them, that they would see and know your call, that would feel the warmth of your love and your grace, that a choice would be a choice with great care and resolve, and that they too would know the glory of King Jesus. Father, help us in this moment. Encourage us, convict us, compel us, we pray. Amen. Every person will have to make a choice of whose rule they will follow. <laughs> Every one of us. And if you want to make that choice today, I would encourage you to do it. You don't need to walk an aisle to make that choice. You don't need to do anything to make that choice, except what God calls us to do in our minds, in our hearts, through prayer to repent and believe. And he promises the grace of the Lord Jesus to be upon you. So if you wanna make that choice today, I would encourage you not to wait another moment. If you wanna to talk to somebody about that choice, there'll be people down front to talk with you and to pray with you. In the quietness of your heart with you and God, don't let another day pass before you make that choice. As you go, hear these good words. Paul writes, grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to him be glory 
forever and ever. Amen. God bless you as you go.